All right, so should we just do a little bit of a an introduction about the the episode? Yes, I'd be happy to. All right, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. We've dropped the carbon goals part because it just sounds too wishy-washy. Like you can't do you can't do buildings at zero carbon. Anyway, I'm here with Lloyd for our next Passive House Plus Revisited episode. Lloyd? Well, I was really excited to do this episode with Toby Cambry because reading the articles that he wrote in Passive House Plus was like a bucket of water. It was like an explosion of thinking a different way about how to deal with buildings. Just for background, I have years experience back when I was an architect and then later as president of the Architectural Conservancy of Ontario of fighting to save old buildings and figuring out how to make older buildings and existing buildings energy efficient. And it was extremely difficult and extremely expensive. And we lost tons of them because of that. And then suddenly I read this article that made me realize that in this new era where we're worried as much about carbon as we are about energy, although you'll hear Toby Cambray say a few things about that too. I thought this was a whole new approach. And so I was really excited to speak to him about his articles. Well, I'm not surprised. He's another fellow putting the user at the center of the building's design. So anyone who hasn't listened to the Kit Knowles episode, Fabric Second, not Fabric First, it's very much of the same thinking. We need to think about the design of the buildings, thinking about the systems rather than creating new dogma. And I was surprised to actually see it in a magazine called Passive House Plus, <laughs> because it in fact challenges the dogma of Passive House in terms particularly of dealing with existing buildings. I, I think that this is why this episode will be so interesting. Yeah. And like uh, we spoke with Peter Warm and Sally Godber a few months back, and they used the phrase passive house as a cipher or a, a pseudonym for building physics. You know, it's the building system. It's the building standard that properly tries to account for building physics, where all the other ones just put buildings up and make sure they don't fall down. Or, you know, I'm perhaps being a bit unfair, but I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right, then. Well, shall we let the episode roll? Or is there anything I else? I think so. I don't have anything else to add. I think the episode will speak for itself. Yep. Cool. All right. You won't have to hear anything more of me, I think, when we get into it, apart from a few words at the beginning. I'm just on buttons in the background. And apologies, Jeff couldn't join us today. He's on his way to Disneyland. Ah. But, yeah, I know. <laughs> He's looking forward to it. He's taking the kids. Where, in France or in the States? Yeah, France. Ah. Uh, Good. A few days at Disneyland and uh, a few days in Paris. We may hear something about that. I don't know. We'll see if we can make it sustainable or built environmentally. Although it is always worth thinking about Walt Disney. He's one of the first serious considered strategists for usability within the built environment. Like hardcore, the way he laid out the way Disneyland was designed to reduce things like litter to meet people's needs, to enhance their experience. It's proper serious work. A bit consumerist, 
for our needs in terms of sustainability. Well, it's a shame he died when he did just starting his Epcot project, his experimental prototype of the future of cities, which was such a fantastic concept and never got off the ground because no one else following him had his particular dream. Oh, well, I think we should talk about that another day then. All right, well, that's another one in the bag. I'll make a note of that. All right, so we'll crack on. Hope you enjoy it. Oh, uh, if you get something out of it, please share it with someone else because you probably know someone else who will get something out of it as well. Review the podcast, like it, join your local, your regional green building organization. We say in the UK, Passive House Plus, not Passive House Plus. In the UK, we direct people towards ACAN and the AECB and the IGBC in Ireland. Who is there over in the States, Lloyd? Because this is our audience for this one, Ooh. although it is useful for everyone. I'd have to think about that. It's a long list. I don't want to say something now and leave it out. I'll put it together for next week, next session. Oh, man, we'll get something in the show notes. All right, dead on. Um, Enjoy. Cheers. Bye. Okay. How do we start? The best way for us to start, Lloyd, is for you to give us a little praise about why you wanted to talk about this article in particular, why you were so keen to speak with Toby. And uh, it might be worth getting in the the correction about right. was it Richard Lowe who came up with the term heat pump five? He claimed credit for for coining that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to uh, start right now. It's conventional wisdom that insulation, adding insulation, and going to say serious levels of insulation, such as the Passive House Enerfit standard, is the best way to go if we are going to reduce our carbon emissions. But last year, I read an article written by Toby Cambray in Passive House Plus that basically turned this on its head, that basically looked at the situation and said, should we be heat pumpifying, to use the word that I first learned there, or should we be insulating and how much of each? I'm here with Toby Cambray to discuss this issue. So, Toby, where did you referred in your wonderful Passive House article back to, is it Erskine? What's his first name? I can't remember. Richard. Yes, Richard Erskine, who wrote mm-hmm. about this in another magazine or in his own blog, I believe it was. And it did turn everything on its head in terms of the conventional wisdom. So can you describe what's happening here, what we're discussing? Sure. So in a nutshell, what um, I think Rich Seskin was getting at is that deep energy retrofit is generally speaking very expensive and it's messy and time consuming and there's a lot of uncertainty and there are a lot of risks. And by comparison, sticking in a heat pump is much more of a known quantity. It's certainly in terms of of cost and uh, yeah, potentially less disruption. And it's pretty well established now that if the sizing heat pump is done correctly and the rest of the system is designed properly, um, then they can work efficiently. Uh, so yeah, there's a, a bit of a, a myth around the fact that um, heat pumps can't heat poorly insulated homes. I think that's derived from some poorly performing systems in the past. And it's certainly true to say that yeah, if the system's not designed well, then it's uh, yeah, it's not going to work very well. But uh, you know, no shit, Sherlock. I suppose is the the answer to that one. 
can we is that allowed <laughs> yeah the fundamental change for the last couple of years that makes this possible of course that we have pivoted from worrying about energy to worrying about carbon so switching to a heat pump obviously is going to significantly reduce carbon emissions over heating with natural gas which i believe is what everybody did before both on your side of the atlantic and mine the question is though i mean the electricity isn't really clean we're still putting out a lot of carbon by burning electricity to run the heat pump so isn't it still really important to add as much insulation as possible to just generally reduce consumption of energy whether it's electricity or gas so in a nutshell yes is this the short answer to to expand on that one of the aspects that i sort of disagree with with rich dersian on um or at least partly disagree is the the way that we need to look at our buildings so what richard's talking about is really a sort of householder approach or a house by house kind of approach and um, so kind of bottom up um, perspective and i think it's really important that we we look at the whole system you know each house is not you know an energy island um we need to think about how that interacts with with, with the electricity grid um yes irrespective of the country uh and, and the nature of that grid it, it is very different in the uk compared to um uh, to where you are so we've been um building an awful lot of um solar and, and wind um power in, in the last sort of decade or so and yeah, there's all sorts of headlines we see sort of on a fairly regular basis about new records being set in terms of the installed capacity, um, the amount we generated, all these kind of really great headlines, uh, which are really exciting with absolutely going in the right direction on that front. But it's a bit more complicated than that because as we, uh, what, what we ultimately are looking to do, we, we could paint kind of utopian picture of this future where we have a grid that's um, completely powered by decarbonized electricity and so hopefully predominantly renewables this, uh, in the uk nuclear uh, will be in there as well uh, like it or not um, maybe we shouldn't get into that particular debate today but the the nature of those types of energy is very different from fossil fuels so fossil fuel power is to use the technical term uh, dispatchable uh, we can turn it on and off and we can turn it up and down. So particularly with gas, um, you can modulate the output of your power stations to match the demand very, very quickly and, and very accurately. And that's how the UK electricity market has, has worked for, for a long time. As we start to add renewables, uh, which you, you know, you've got to take what you get uh, from the wind and the sun effectively, and also uh, nuclear, which is much harder to modulate. You can't modulate very quickly. Then the the, the way the grid uh, or the way our buildings interact with the grid um, is going to have to change as well. On top of that, we also so we're saying we want to transfer in the UK. You know, the the majority of space heating in the domestic context um, is with gas. That's an awful lot of sheer energy every year, and we're saying we want to transfer that over on onto the electricity grid. And um, so, uh, although we've built a lot of renewable capacity, and we're starting to you know, get a, you know, a good proportion of the electricity market 
is renewable. We then actually we again need to expand that capacity to do uh, this thing in sort of simple terms of transferring all of our gas heating over to the electricity grid. So in simple terms, it still makes an awful lot of sense to be insulating our buildings as much as possible so that we're not having to triple the size of our electricity grid. Um, and by the way, there's EVs Absolutely. as well. Um, and uh, when you look at industry reports, they all tend to sort of ignore the fact that there's other industries that also want to you know, harness the electricity grid. So um, we, we, you know, we need to build a hell of a lot of uh, renewable capacity to do all of these things. And that's before we get to the, the point that um, it's yeah, it's, it's variable and we need to kind of deal with that um, somehow. It's a big engineering challenge. The real problem is, as you, you're saying, is the peak load. The problem is, is that in the worst of winter or the darkest nights when everybody's firing everything at once, it's the peak that we have to design for. And the more insulation that you do, the lower the peak is going to be. On the other hand, there's another issue that we have to take into account that we never used to take into account, which is the embodied carbon of the building materials. And if you say, go insulate your house with styrofoam or expanded polystyrene or things like that, a lot of these materials have serious embodied or upfront carbon that's emitted in their manufacture. Kelly Alvarez-Doran, an architect who's working in London and in Canada, did a calculation where I live for Toronto that's going from double glazed windows to triple glazed windows, that because of the extra pane of glass and the bigger frame, that the wouldn't pay for itself. The carbon crossover wouldn't happen until 2258. Like we're talking 150 years before the embodied carbon of that extra window is actually sort of balanced in its carbon. So that is another reason that maybe we shouldn't be going the full fit, the full deep retrofit direction. What are your thoughts about that? So... Deep retrofit and nanofit, two kind of different things. Or well, there's a, there's a Venn diagram of some sort where maybe you know nanofit is a facet of, of deep energy retrofit. So um, you know, there's there's an interesting debate. Well, in some ways it's quite boring actually, <laughs> but there's been you know, the, the <laughs> debate on the carbon payback of triple glazing is is has been going on for many years, and in when I've done some numbers on this, it's been a while, but it it really depends very strongly on what assumptions you make about the carbon intensity of the materials you're using and the performance of the subsequent uh, product. So yeah, those, those assumptions have a big uh, effect on, on that balance. But there's a, there's a broader uh, sort of picture here as well. Maybe this is more of a new build thing, but th there's an important point around can't just make windows a bit smaller. Um, you know, we tend to oversize uh, windows, yeah, for you know, grand designs type um, purposes. That's the UK TV show where people do self-build houses, and they're usually these kind of highly architected, uh, sort of fondant fancy kind of things. That's the sort of stereotype, anyway. So, yeah, the the the, the performance of the window it sort of needs to be considered in the context of the performance of the, the whole building. Is is a key point there, right? I don't want to talk about triple versus double again. <laughs> so let's draw a little line on that bit. One one of the 
points I wanted to make about insulation, because there's probably more of that. And, and yeah, when we're doing retrofit, that's a more important sort of bit in, in many cases in terms of the, the energy performance. It's not very dense. And um, so that means, you know, for a given area of insulation, it doesn't require that much upfront carbon anyway, compared to right. all the structural stuff. You know, the, the stuff we really need to be thinking hard about is you know, concrete and, and steel and yes, glass. And 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 so, you know, there is a, a point at which the embodied carbon of insulation will start to tip over because the nature of the U value or the, the R value uh, on the other side of the, the pond you do get this kind of diminishing returns thing very quickly where you need to double your thickness for every incremental increase. So that there is definitely a, a limit there. But also, again, right. it depends on what material we're talking about. You know, we're in the process of putting um, 200 mil or uh, what's that, eight inches in your terms of cellulose insulation on the outside of, of our house here. And uh, yeah, and that's really low as uh, recycled materials. It's paper-based. It's locking up carbon in large finger air quote things you know so yeah it, it really depends you've got to sort of do your homework and it, it's dangerous to make sweeping statements i think i'm sort of being a little bit of a devil's advocate here because frankly i think that what is so wonderful about what you wrote and what was so wonderful about this is that you know doing deep energy retrofits usually meant that it was a gut job it wasn't just the insulation but usually you're stripping the interior and then rebuilding the walls a new drywall to cover the new insulation or you're cladding the whole exterior of the house in foam and then stucco and something like that and the wonderful thing about the approach that we're taking discussing here is that if you insulated the big easy chunks like the roof or if you have a basement or crawl space in that and then you air seal the rest that you can significantly reduce the heat loss in the building and then make up the difference with a heat pump rather than the old way which was you know if we're really going to solve this problem we have to insulate everything to death and gut gut every house so this really opens up existing buildings historic buildings uh buildings with existing windows that you want to preserve it's a different way of looking at the problem and that is the fundamental point that's so wonderful about the idea of heat pumpification versus insulation or a combination of the both yeah i think that combination thing is really important to to remember so uh yeah we used to have this phrase or you know we still do uh, fabric first and you know that implies this thing of you know, deep energy retrofit we we sort out the fabric and and then we'll maybe do a heat pump afterwards i think we need to reconsider the order in which we do things and that's because of um you know this uh, stuff that the richards um quite rightly pointed out that in the uk at least the the heat pump market is matured much more rapidly than the retrofit market because of all the, you know, the reasons we were talking about at the top but they're not mutually exclusive so right. uh if you think about it in advance i mean even if you don't think about it in advance, you know you can install a, a heat pump in such a way and um, that um, enables and facilitates uh, a deep energy retrofit subsequently, or even a, a relatively shallow uh, retrofit. Um, you know, and there's low hanging fruit that we should absolutely be um, going for in any case, as you sort of allude to. 
I should explain. Um, I, I should explain the phrase "fabric first, which is used oh, much over on uh, in the UK than it is in North America. Where when I first used "fabric first, they thought I was talking about putting on a sweater. So um, we have to explain. This is the building fabric, the the shell of the building that we should concentrate on first, which is making it airtight and insulating it. And what you're saying is maybe it isn't so much fabric first anymore as looking at the whole picture holistically together, the fabric and the heat pump and the, the whole system together. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in the past, the sort of paradigm, I guess, was the architects would uh, design a building um, and then the engineers would come along and, and make it work. And uh, so, you know, we would be designing our heating systems um, to, to suit whatever the architect had, had come up with. And yeah, in, I, I would explain fabric first approach, just, you know, same as what you just said, really. But um, as, as uh, we you know, design fabric to facilitate, you know, a, a good, you know, small, efficient um, heating system uh, and one that's going to consume much less energy. I did want to quote Martin Holliday. So there's the another phrase that has come up over here in North America and a website called Green Building Advisor that I write for, where mm -hmm. Martin Holliday, who was the editor for decades, basically says that now we shouldn't be doing anything over code. His line is code minimum is the new green because he thinks that any money we put into fancier windows or more insulation and that is a problem of upfront carbon, whereas the heat pump eliminates the problem of operating carbon. Um, I disagree with him because he's going to need a bigger heat pump and bigger heat pumps mean more refrigerant. And everybody is ignoring in all of the mad rush to heat pumpification, the question of refrigerant types and refrigerant leakage, which is a significant issue especially with some of the, I should explain, there are, in Europe, there's much more acceptance and use of propane or R290 as a refrigerant. I was looking, you could get uh, monoblock heat pumps of up to 22 kilowatts with R290 as a refrigerant. And that's huge. That'll do a big house, 22 mm -hmm. kilowatts. And they have only 1.3 kilograms of propane in them, which isn't much at all. And they're monoblocks, which means it's all outside. You don't bring refrigerant into the house. It's sealed up in a box outside. You just have a plumber connect up a water line to and from it, and you're in business. And my question to you is, is there a push? Is anyone taking this seriously that maybe all heat pumps should be like, you know, there was an American... Um, David Roberts, who was saying, you know, fist pumps for heat pumps. And, you know, my version of it is fist pumps for R290 monoblocks, which doesn't roll off the tongue as well. But I think it's an important issue. Is anyone talking about it at your end? So, yes, it's probably the short answer. I, this is not my sort of area of expertise. But, yeah, there's, there is a much stronger um, sort of legislation, I think, um, and and processes sort of in place to 
to drive the market in that direction. So yeah, we're absolutely seeing more R290 products on the market as well. Um, R32 is becoming more popular as well. So that's uh, a, I'm just looking it up, that's a, an HFC. Um, it's still got sort of a moderate GWP, so global warming potential. And yeah, you can even now I think get some R744 units, uh, which is the fancy technical term for, for CO2, which is right. um, kind of ironic in, in a way. But actually compared to a lot of these other refrigerants, um, CO2 has got a really low global warming potential. Everything else is benchmarked from CO2. CO2. So, Problem with CO2 ones, though, is that they can only heat, right? They can't cool. And we're getting into a world now where I think people want to get the cooling half of the unit as well as the heating half of the unit. Uh, I'm going to get some advice on that particular point. We'll have to edit this out. Can you cool the CO2 unit? Do you know anyone? My partner, Han, who's the real engineer, thinks that there are maybe CO2 units that can do cooling. Um, it, It may well depend on... Uh, the market, so you know, the Japanese market, for example, has been a long way ahead of us on, um, a long way ahead of the no. UK at least on um, heat pumps and many splits and things like that for for many years. Yeah, no, I thought maybe I'm out of date, but that like I was actually looking at them for my house, mm-hmm. and it was just that the temperature, the tra- the temperature where it vaporizes in the machine is just too high uh, mm. to get any cooling out of it. There's another point that I think is really issue, an important issue, and it follows up in the discussion we had with Kate DeSellencourt here, which is fine, we don't need as much insulation, but we still really have to worry about comfort and health and mold and condensation. And we also have to worry when we're going to a fully renewable system about resilience and intermittency that sometimes maybe the government has to say, you have to turn off your heat pump because we don't have enough electricity to run it. But don't worry, you'll be fit. will be back in a couple of hours. If you're in a really well-insulated house, that doesn't matter. If we're going to start doing uh, I've just lost Lloyd. Yeah, I've lost him down. as well. Mm. Yeah, he's gone. He may well reappear. <laughs> and you're, well, you're, you're suddenly back. And you didn't get my emails because the, apologizing for my internet dying because it just went now. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> of course. Okay, so are we go? A final point that I think that is really critical that we have to discuss is the other side of this equation, which is what happens if we don't insulate enough. We talked last session with Kate DeSellencourt about this, that we have to worry about the issues of health, of mold, of condensation. We also have a problem that when we're converting to wind and solar and systems like that, that they are basically intermittent. And one of the beauties of a deep retrofit with lots and lots of insulation is that these houses basically are resilient. If the electricity, if the utility comes and says, we have to turn off your heat pump for an hour because we don't have enough electricity, you say, so what? No big deal, because the house is essentially a thermal battery. So here we are now, we're talking about maybe we don't need to insulate so much. Are we opening ourselves up to a whole raft of new problems or basically ignoring old problems of health and humidity and condensation? Or is there a crossover point, a balance that you think we have to find that balances 
insulation, heat pumpification for comfort and health. So I think there's some super interesting stuff coming down the road very quickly at us around demand response. Um, so I think it's very unlikely that we'll be in a situation where utility company says we're going to cut you off for a couple of hours. And um, what's much more likely is that we'll have more offers on on market that allow uh, consumers to access the half hour market or potentially ESCO type models, so energy service company models where uh, consumers purchase comfort uh, or purchase heat, um, but they purchase temperature really rather than heat and, and energy. And that's there's already kind of a lot of work being been done here in the UK on that kind of thing. And there's um, at least one company, so Octopus Energy um, in the UK, that have a, a tariff which essentially allows consumers to purchase on the, on the half-hour market so you can switch on your EV charging when it's uh, cheap and, and that sort of thing. In terms of how deep we go with our retrofit in that context, every building needs to be sort of considered on its own merits to an extent. Um, and the nature of that existing building is going to dictate to a significant extent what is an appropriate um, level to go to. But you're absolutely right that broadly speaking, if we're well insulated, then that's going to make the house much more resilient. So um, it's going to allow that flexibility. Um, so yes, you, better insulated house is going to, you're going to be able to switch the, the heating system off for uh, a number of hours um, or potentially even a number of days um, to allow you to sort of ride out peaks in in, in price. Um, so that of how I see BIT um, working ultimately. In terms of the, the health and, yeah, so th that side of things um, and thermal comfort is the other sort of very closely allied um, bit there. It turns out because of the law of diminishing returns with, with U-values that we were talking about earlier, a little bit of ventilation goes quite a long way as long as it's spread out nice and evenly and you don't leave gaps everywhere. So basically, if, if you do a good job at avoiding thermal bridging, um, then you don't need very much insulation to um, really dramatically improve thermal comfort um, in some of our um, sort of leaky old um, homes that we have uh, in the UK. So yeah, a, a modest layer of insulation, and we're talking about you know 50 mil, something like that, um, is basically going to solve that surface temperature issue, which is the thing that's really driving the both the, the health in terms of uh, mold growth and avoiding mold growth, um, and surface temperature. Um, sorry, and, and the radiant uh, temperatures because we we perceive temperature as a function of both air and um, the temperature of the surfaces around us and the way we exchange radiant heat with those. So. Yeah, I guess the bottom line is more insulation is, is is definitely a good thing in terms of that sheer energy uh, reduction and the flexibility. But where we're constrained, then a little bit goes a very long way, as long as you can spread it around nice and evenly and avoid your thermal bridges. Um, and by the way, we also need to do a decent job on the ventilation um, to make sure we're getting enough fresh air through and, and controlling humidity in an appropriate way. So you're 50, you know, you're talking two inches of insulation. I have always been disparaging of the cavity wall system that you build with over in the UK. And everybody's then coming along now and what they're drilling holes and filling them with styrofoam beads or whatever. But that's about two inches, isn't it? So I always thought this is going to be a totally useless thing, that it's not enough insulation, that they're not going to be filling it all properly, that this can't really work on a large scale. But are you saying it perhaps can? So there's nothing to stop you pressing external wall insulation 
on a cavity wall. So, you, you know, you're not limited to that cavity. And that's, that's exactly what I've been processed of doing on, on my house here. It's had some cavity one stage for a long time and it's not a warm house. Uh, that's also to do with you know, the air leakage and all that kind of stuff. Cavity wall insulation in the UK is a slightly controversial topic. There's been a number of high profile failures and the industry hasn't covered itself in glory because uh, it, like we were saying you know, earlier, if you sort of do a rush job, um, use rubbish materials or inappropriate materials, um, then stuff goes wrong. Like you, you don't, you know, it's not rocket science, guys. <laughs> so it depends on the area uh, of the UK that we're in. So we've got maps um, that installers ought to be referring to in terms of uh, wind-driven rain. So if you're in um, you know, the west of Scotland where uh, you know, the rain comes piling in on the back of a 100-mile-an-hour uh, storm, then guess what? You can get a lot of rain loading on that wall. Um, and yeah, you need to think carefully before bridging that county, which is doing an important job as a capillary break. In some areas, yeah, where you've got render on there, then that might be a much safer bet. Um, the type of material is quite important. So some materials are inherently a bit better at uh, avoiding that moisture crossing the cavity. But uh, yeah, when, when we do our drawings and things, yeah, we sort of draw this nice parallel, smooth cavity. Um, in reality, we've got uh, wall ties in there. We've got mortar snots. Uh, we've got yes. things bridging that cavity. And when, that's, when, an- that's another English term for people who don't understand that I've <laughs> never heard before that I love, which are mortar snots, which are bits of mortar that hang out because, of course, the bricklayer can't get at them or doesn't bother getting at them. And, and they just stop insulation and moisture and everything else from flowing because it's not a full cavity. But it's a great term. Well, in, in fact, with respect to uh, rain, they, they form a moisture bridge between the, the inner and the outer leaf. That The purpose of that cavity, the primary the original purpose of it was to stop rain getting from the outside surface to, to the inside surface. Right. Um, but if you've got a, you know, a blob of mortar bridging across it, then that's literally a bridge for, for moisture to get across. One of the issues is if that's across an open cavity, you can get away with quite a lot because the water can evaporate from the surfaces of the snot into the cavity and then be sort of ventilated or diffused away. If you fill that cavity with insulation, then that water's going to be much, much less able to evaporate off the surface of the snot. So it's going to go through onto the inner leaf. What the really mind-blowing, I will still say, thing about your articles were that we have to fundamentally rethink our whole attitude of the way we have been thinking all this time about energy, 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 and that when you look at carbon, 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 it actually changes your perspective completely. And I don't think building codes have caught up with that. I don't think architects have caught up with that. But the basically this opportunity with heat pumps to look at the whole package differently, as you mentioned before, as one unit, heat plus insulation, rather than, as you said earlier, here's the building, give it to the engineer, size a unit, and that's it. Who leads this now? Like, is this now a new world where we really have to get the engineers and the architects working far more closely together than they were before? I said at one point, I was thinking, well, maybe we have to set just a limit 
on heat loss for a house that can be met with a uh, R290 monoblock that we have to rethink the whole process of design, perhaps, around this new world of heat pumps. Do you see it changing the way professions work and the way houses are designed? I think in the context of what we're trying to do in the UK, we've got 27 million homes thereabouts in the UK, and most of those are going to need to be, uh, we're going to need to do something with pretty much all of those, whether that's just putting a heat pump in or whether it's a deep energy retrofit, or I, you know, in my opinion, ideally, some combination of the two, um, maybe with different depths of, of retrofit and um, we can have a sort of portfolio approach to that again you know, thinking from the, the top down so we've got an awful lot of, of homes uh, to deal with um, and lots of other commercial buildings things aside and um, we've basically got a load of homes that we've got to do something with the reality of the way the industry is working in the uk is that an architect and a consultant like me will not be involved we will not get anywhere near the vast majority of those projects there's too many we're too expensive that doesn't work so we've got to put in place other means to, to make sure that good sensible effective solutions are provided so i'm working at the moment with a relatively new organization called national retrofit hub and, and part of our work is uh, looking at exactly these kinds of issues so i would foresee a, a situation where we need some legislation to put in place um, safeguards and minimum requirements that have the right kind of teeth to make this happen. Uh, but I think what we're really talking about is a situation where uh, heat pump installers um, have a much better understanding of this, uh, of the fabric, um, and, and a really solid understanding of how you put in a heat pump that works properly and works well, and how that interacts with the fabric. So I think that that's one of the things I'd, I'd really like to see is um, skilling up those trades. And, and so sort of conversely, the the kind of the jobbing builders um, and the small construction companies that are doing the vast um, majority of the, the RMI, the uh, refurbishment, maintenance and improvement sector work in the UK. So these you know, small firms that have you know, typically got the dad at the top, the experienced kind of builder, you know, maybe they work with um, an architectural technician, uh, someone that does their planning drawings and some build control drawings uh, for the technical design. It's those kind of people that I think we need to get engaged and upskilled in these kinds of process to really start to, to hit the numbers from, from that yeah, sort of deployment point of view. Well, thank you very much for this. This has been great. I really recommend that everyone hit the links that we'll provide to Toby's original articles. They really changed the way I've thought about buildings. I'm involved with the National Trust in Canada, which is involved in historic preservation. And I believe that this approach has particularly important things to say to the preservation and the heritage movement that older buildings can be saved and can be carbon efficient, even if they're not as energy efficient as we would like them to be. Thanks. Thanks again. Can I say something? I don't know if you, if you can find a place to drop this in, Dan, then, then great. And if, if not, then. So I, I was thinking about sort of Lloyd's um, when he's saying energy, 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 and it's now carbon, carbon, carbon. I guess my response to that might be energy is dead, long live energy. Or another way of looking at it is, is you can't really isolate these two 
kind of things. So what the atmosphere cares about is the concentration of, of CO2 molecules up there, creating the, the greenhouse effect. But what we're really interested now is, again, going back to that idea of this kind of utopian future where we have successfully decarbonized our electricity supply, then the way we think about energy becomes a, a, a bit different because we've sort of dealt with the carbon, ideally, once we've got to this point where we've got lots of hydro and solar and wind and whisper it nuclear. So that changes the way I think we need to frame that whole debate and it's me to evolve that conversation from purely your kilo hours per square meter per year, potentially start thinking about other metrics that reflect the needs of how our whole system needs to operate more. So how many hours or how many days can our buildings last without heating and remain comfortable? Yeah. How many degrees does the, the building drop per hour in a on a, on a cold snap? Or, yeah. So there's plenty of other sort of ways that we need to look at that.